Um, I get I hear that so many times. I get advice from people <laughs> <laughs> from the UPS driver telling me that I shouldn't be speaking Spanish to my kids. <laughs> I don't have anything against the driver, right? But when it talks about planning and what language I speak to my child, is really up to me, right? <laughs> Welcome to Entre Dos, a podcast about raising bilingual children. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you're doing well. We are doing great today because we have our very first guest. Joining us is Dr. Annie Castilla Earls. She's an associate professor of communication sciences and disorders at the University of Houston, who was recently awarded a grant for the nation, from the National Institute of Health to research first language loss in young children who are Spanish-English bilingual. Welcome, Annie. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited about this opportunity to talk to you and to your audience. Thank you. Um, Annie, this is Paula. When, when we've talked about bilingualism here in Houston, we've had conversations, and you'll sometimes say things like, Do, you, do I have my researcher hat on or do I have my mom hat on? Because you're also, aside from researching bilingualism, you're also raising bilingual twins. And uh, we identified a lot with the interactions you described having with them in your work. And so we wanted to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about them and your family and your experience raising bilingual twins. Absolutely. So uh, as Paula just mentioned, um, I have twins, a boy and a girl, Santiago and Gabriela. Um, they were born here in the United States. I'm originally from Colombia, so my first language is Spanish. I came here when I was 25 years old, I think, um, something like that, um, a long time ago. Uh, but my kids were born here. Um, when they were born, I made a conscious effort or I had a good conversation with my husband about what languages we were going to speak and what was important to us. And in that discussion, we both agreed that it was extremely important for us to raise our kids to be bilingual in both Spanish and English. Um, my husband was born in Canada and his first language is English, but he speaks Spanish very well. I think very similarly to the way I speak um, English. So we were lucky enough that we could speak Spanish in our home as our main language. And six years later, we still do this. Um, Spanish is the language of our home. And Santiago and Gabriela right now um, are completely fluent bilinguals. They can switch between the two languages speak Spanish if they are talked to in Spanish, speak English if they are talked to in English, and seem to manage that quite well with not many complications. As um, So yes, that's a little bit of my experience um, raising bilingual kids. Well, you know, Monica here, Annie, and you know, it's, you're saying that, that your children are, are fluently, fluent in both languages. And I remember when my daughter Zoe um, was about to start preschool. Um, she was about three. Um, I could very confidently say that English was her second language. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's been about a year and a half. And this has flipped. And now I feel that English is the dominant language. Um, and she? she's four and a half. Mm -hmm. So she, and she spends a significant amount of, of, of time at school. And I wonder, you know, how important is it to understand which is the second language and how often do sort of you, you can flip from, you know, the primary language to the second language? Is that something that, that happens, especially when a kid transitions to a school environment, for instance, where English is the dominant language? So what we, what we know, and now I have my researcher hat on, <laughs> as well. <laughs> Um, so this is what we know. We know that entering school that is in English only is uh, is really the main marker for children to become 
more English proficient. Um, when we read research, the research on, for example, adults now that had grown up in the United States, uh, parents report that they notice their kids switch to a preference of English once that school starts, once school started, right? Once education in English started. Um, but I think the shift there with education is based on the amount of input. Um, to be able to speak a language, you need to have the exposure to that language. That's a very basic assumption, right? And if you have been always been exposed to Spanish, and then one day that changed dramatically, and suddenly um, your peers are speaking English, then then you notice that that is changing. Um, we also need to take into account that English is the language of the majority in the United States, and it's also the language of prestige, right? Like. That's what right. is considered to be normal in our environment. You speak English and you belong. So all these things play a role and kids switch that preference really early on against our best efforts. Unless <laughs> 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 in my case, I did everything possible for them not to be exposed to, and for them not to be exposed to English. I really did an, made a conscious effort to that, um, but there is, so much I could do once English was there, it became the strongest language or it become now I know they are both proficient in both languages. Now, do we need children to be proficient in both languages? Um, that is the goal for my family. And it seems that perhaps it's Monica's goal. And because Paula and I are friends, I know it's also the goal for her. Um, so it really depends on what the family wants and parents have discuss that it will be ideal for children, right? Um, but I also wanted to add that preference doesn't necessarily mean um, lack of proficiency, mm -hmm. right? right? Like, because you you and I, you guys, I mean, the three of us, we were just speaking Spanish and then we can switch to English and then we can switch to Spanish. So the language that you prefer has a lot of different connotations and a lot of different values depending on the group. Um, I think my point, the, the part that I will look into more is if you're speaking Spanish to your children and they are responding in English, then that's when you know this is going away from just a preference in the language that I use and maybe the strongest language to maybe initial stages of lack of proficiency in that language, if I'm making sense. Yes. Right. And, and that's part of what you're, you're looking into, the, the loss of language, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And yeah. we know that the loss of language it happens gradually. Um, I try to, even though my grant has the name into it, because it's easier for people to understand what does it mean to lose the language, it's a, it's a term that is in some ways problematic, right? Because I really don't know if children are completely losing their language. Um, what we know about these children who are raised in the United States and stop using the language uh, we call them heritage speakers when they are entering school, um, I mean in college, and they have good receptive skills. It's just their expressive skills are not as good, and they need some immersion, but did they ever completely lost the language? Not, right? So I try to stay away from the term language loss and more talk about these changes that are normal during development in our proficiency and in our preferences of what language we speak and that are mediated by many, many factors um, in our environment. And I think that's one of kind of what you were talking about is one of the fears that probably parents like you and, and Monica and myself have that they're gonna get to that point where they're, I agree that they probably don't lose the language, but that they get to the point where they don't necessarily wanna use it at all or, or it becomes kind of, secondary and i think that's that's a fear when because our kids are still young but what happens later and is there anything that you can do really once they become older and they default to to a preference for english or not even just a preference but they just kind of put spanish to the side i know and there you know there are so many factors again associated with that because for us as a mother spanish is my first language so just from that standpoint of an emotional connection with my children, for me, it's really, really important to speak Spanish to them. And also, they are in a little bit an extension of my own culture and who I am, and therefore, I place this emphasis into Spanish for them. Um, I, I guess that we 
now this is the mother in me right we have no control over what they are going to prefer and what they're going to have but i try to talk to my kids about the importance of speaking to languages of valuing the experience of learning in spanish and english and when someone speaks only in one language i say like things like look she only speaks english she doesn't have that ability to speak other language how fortunate you are that you can do both and i think it's not only about the using the language at home but also about showing them how important it is that might have a lasting effect on their proficiency but yes i also fear that they when they say i don't want to speak spanish um i have heard that report from many mothers from oh, friends from everywhere when, yes exactly <laughs> like we are all like no <laughs> to us. <laughs> I always, when I go and do a talk or when I am invited to a conference, I always say, like, my kids have to speak Spanish because who will I be if I'm here speaking about raising bilingual <laughs> children and my kids cannot do it? <laughs> um, that will not go well. Um, but I think it's more about that emotional connection the day they say they don't want to do that is, yeah. I don't know, I hope I, that does not happen. Right? <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, you're, ta you're talking a little bit about, you know, the, the sort of the the different variables, right, that contribute to bilingualism. And one of the things that's really important and that, that it's probably the one thing you, you can't really control as much is the impact of, of your community, right, in this language development, how, you know, where you live, you know, how, how that language is valued, how much it's used. Um, and, and that's, we, I think we, we all live in places where Spanish is, you know, pretty dominant more than any other language outside of English. So that's a great thing. But, you know, what about people that are living in places where if you go to a public space and you say something in Spanish, people are going to look at you in a certain way <laughs> yeah, because it just talk, breaks the yeah. flow. Yeah. Yeah. I can talk for, about that from experience because I think in some ways you can modify, but not everyone is so fortunate to modify the environment. Um, and before living here in Houston, in Houston, Texas, where I live now, I used to live in Buffalo, New York, and I remember going to the store and I'll speak Spanish to my kids and people will stop me and ask me what language I was speaking. And so mm -hmm. I was really outside, you know, like I was an outsider completely. People were interested, but it was just not like, what is that language that you're speaking, right? Um, and now that I'm here in Houston, that question, of course, never happens anymore because 40% of the population in Houston speaks Spanish. So that is huge. And when we decided to move to Houston, that was definitely a big factor in our decision to do it because I said, I want my kids to go to the playground and be able to speak Spanish to their kids. I want them to have access to bilingual education, to dual language schools. I want them to know that speaking Spanish, that being bilingual is not the exception. Um, it's more like the norm, which is, I think, the case in the in in Houston. And I wanted to do that, but I also am aware that those things are not possible for everyone, right? Yes, it makes it difficult <laughs> for some people, depending on where they are. And since you mentioned that, one of the things that you talk about you shared a chapter that you wrote for a book that's hasn't been published yet and the chapter is called raising children bilingually what parents and educators should know about bilingualism and children one of the things you talk about there is the importance of language planning for your family and you've touched on that a little bit already by speaking about what you've done in your own family and the importance of community and schooling but why is it so important to have a plan and and for families that may not be in communities that have more access to Spanish speakers or that don't have as many dual language opportunities? What do you say to those families? So I think the key for us raising bilingual children, people usually worry about their English. Oh, are they going to learn English? Let's read to them in English. Let's buy them this app in English so they learn English quickly. And I think that the research has shown us that becoming bilingual is relatively a painless process. Uh, kids learn English in ways that we don't understand sometimes, right? Sometimes my kids say things that I'm like, I have no idea how they learned that or how they... Um, are using those expressions. Um, so English is not the part that worries me when I talk about bilingual planning. When I'm talking about planning 
bilingualism and really say, how are you parents making sure that your child is going to be exposed enough to the home language? And this works for Spanish, it works for Cantonese, it works for any language that you might think, um, because the key here is on exposure um, to, for those children. So um, what I always did is like try to see how many hours, and I know I'm that crazy mom that knows too much about this, so I'm on the extreme, but I will control how many hours a week they were exposed to Spanish and to English to guarantee that most of the exposure was to Spanish. And when I noticed that things were not in balance, um, I will make adjustments. Um, so I make conscious decisions, for example, that if I was going to read to them before they started school, my reading to them was going to be only in Spanish, even though I understand that it's important to read to, in English to them now. But before they enter school, we never read in English. Um, so those type of decisions are important. Um, I'm also fortunate enough that I can send my kids to Colombia during the summer. Um, where they are only in a completely monolingual environment and they are just forced to use it and to learn it and to do that. And that is perhaps my a good recommendation for parents who live in areas where the minority language, in this case Spanish or any other language, um, is not as often used in the environment. One thing that I hear, and maybe I'm guessing you hear often, when it relates to bilingualism is this concept of confusion. Um, I remember when Emilia was about two at a play date, another parent asked me, aren't you worried she's going to be confused? Because I would, at that point, I was very, even in play dates where it was all English speakers, I would still speak to her in Spanish only. And that was what she responded to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what do you say to a parent who fears or to or who gets people telling them oh they're going to get confused I, get, I hear that so many times i get advice from people from the ups <laughs> driver telling me that i shouldn't be speaking <laughs> spanish to my kids you know i'm like <laughs> i don't have anything against oh, the driver right but when he talks about planning and what language i speak to my child is really up to me right <laughs> um so we have absolutely no research evidence whatsoever that will say that learning two languages is complex to kids or that is harder than learning one language um, in that sense that they will make them confused. Um, I think a very important point is that we make this big deal here about learning two languages when half of the world speaks two languages and three we know even thinking about it, right? So if you think about countries in Africa, um, these people speak three, four, five languages with no worry about what they are doing on a daily basis and worrying that these kids are going to be confused. Um, and from the research standpoint, we don't have anything that will tell us. So being bilingual doesn't create any, in any way to be confused. Um, what you see, I think what some people might interpret it as confusion is the natural and completely normal aspect of being bilingual, which is that sometimes you use one language and then the next one. But no, we have no, we have no evidence that this in any way could be damaging to children. And you know, in your in your the chapter you, you shared with us, you use an example. I think it's one of your kids that that does this, where they grammatically say something. They say something in Spanish, but yes. the grammar is in English. And, and that's something that, that my daughter does. And I sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. in my, I have the way that, of course, I am no linguist <laughs> or, or speech pathologist, but I'm thinking, oh my goodness, she mm -hmm. is thinking in English and translating in her head to Spanish. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that would stop me, right? And I don't think it has anything to do with confusion, but it's definitely something that is a concern, right? And I will correct mm -hmm. her but it, it, she continues to do it. And you say that this is just part of the normal development. Correct. So you have two languages that are in some way um, interdependent, right, in your brain, and you are learning rules about the language in each of them, and it's completely normal during development using those two languages. My kids used to say, and not only it is not that Spanish is influenced by English, but Spanish, English can also influence Spanish. Um, so it goes both ways. Um, my kids, until very recently, they still use in, in papi carro, 
um, which is a, in translation of in dad's car, right? Like a construction that does not exist in Spanish. And, but they were using it from their English grammatical structure to say things. Um, but it's completely normal, nothing to worry about. Uh, you say, I think Monica, you say you usually will correct it. What I do is, and I don't know what you mean by correction, but when Santiago says, eh, vamos en papi carro, I say, vamos en el carro de papi, right? And I offer the right construction right. as a reinforcement. It's something that we often refer to as recasting or just saying what the child say correctly and expanding it a little bit. Um, and that is all I do. And then recently I realized that they were doing it. And my kids are strong Spanish speakers, right? Like stronger than at some point that in English right now, I think balance, but they have been doing this for, for a long time. So yes, languages can, can influence each other. Um, it happens to me as an adult, and I think it happens to you guys, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. Yes, <laughs> it yeah. does. Yeah. We were talking about that the other day. We were saying sometimes it feels like, you know, Spanish is my second language. And then other times, like English is my second language because you develop vocabulary in certain aspects of your life. And it's almost like, you know, it's, for instance, with, with, my professional life, which happens mostly in English, I feel that I have a, a much wider vocabulary mm -hmm. in that language than I do in Spanish. Absolutely. And sometimes I end up using, you know, I can't translate even, you know, what I'm trying to say in Spanish, which is, I guess that, that that's normal. <laughs> that's just part of, you know, being bilingual and developing, you know, and, and be living in those two sort of worlds. Yeah, it's just when you have two languages, you also have like two different contexts for things. So um, I don't ask me to write an email in Spanish that is a formal email to a university professor because I have no right. idea how to do that. <laughs> like I never do that, right? And I'm so glad exactly. that when we decided we're going to do this podcast was in English because this is my professional life and this vocabulary and this type of talk I do I do in English and in Spanish. Can I do it? Yes, but it's, it's harder to access the lexical items. It's harder to get the right words. Um, so it's absolutely normal for us adults to have areas that we are stronger and to have some influence of Spanish and English and as it is for children, even more for them that are still developing their language systems, right? So yes, this is a completely normal um, aspect of being bilingual and in no ways is a symbol of confusion. Are there other things aside from what we mentioned, for example, you know, the grammatical structure of a phrase or a sentence? Are there other things that are normal in bilingual children's development that people may misconstrue as confusion? Um, so we do different things. We do something that is called code switching. And that happens to me, it happens to adults, to everyone who is bilingual, which is you actually, you should think about it as an ability to switch in between two languages, right? You can start speaking about it something in Spanish and if for some reason you relate more to in English in some ways or it was accessible quicker in English than you finish in English. So you have this healthy interchange between the two languages. Um, so that is common. Um, we often use something that is called borrowings, which is um, in my house when we talk, even if we speak in Spanish, raspberries are raspberries and I have never called them frambuesas. <laughs> You know, because I don't know, I don't, I don't think I use the word frambuesas in Colombia. Frambuesas are not that common in Colombia, yes, right? Yes, that's true. So we're speaking, we're speaking Spanish, and then we have these borrowings from English that are related to the context, and it's common for kids to know. And if you ask to my child if he knows the word frambuesas in English, probably they don't know it, because <laughs> we don't even use it when we are speaking in Spanish, and that doesn't mean they don't know the language, that doesn't mean that they are not proficient is just you learn the things in the context that you are. So on that note, another thing that is completely normal for bilingual children is to know words in one language and not in the other. Um, and in that, in that chapter that you guys are referring to, I think I gave the example of the fruits um, that, for example, banana could be a word that they know in Spanish and English, right? You could say banana, banano, and banana, and depending on the environment that you are, referred to too, but perhaps at school they tend to eat more apples 
that you don't feed them at home and then maybe at home you feed them piña. So they might know piña in Spanish but don't know the word pineapple. They might know the word apple in English but they might not know the word manzana in Spanish and they might know the word banana in both. That's completely normal for children. It's completely normal for even, even for younger children. Um, that doesn't mean they don't know the words. They have the concept and with experience they will develop um, the words in both languages. Although something interesting is that there is not such a thing as translation equivalence for everything, right? I always give this example that I think you're going to think is interesting is we have the word in Spanish for tuerto. Right. Right? So <laughs> what is tuerto? Can you tell me in English? Someone that doesn't who have, who someone that's missing an eye. It's a sentence. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's sentence. not a cyclop, right? Right, no. No. Someone that's So you had, you had two eyes at some point or more, and now you only have <laughs> one. One. Right. Right? So, you know, so those are the things about bilingual. Like, if you try to call someone tuerto, refer even to that word in English, you'll have to do three sentences or a really long <laughs> sentence to name that. Well, in Spanish, you have one single word to do it. Right. And it's the same way from both languages. It's just that is the language, that is the example that always comes to my mind when I think about the complexity of being bilingual and, and you know, and, and being raised in the United States. Yeah. I think that part of that, you know, the concern of, let's say, using certain words in English and English only when you're speaking Spanish, for in instance, might have something to do with the vilification of the concept of Spanglish mm -hmm. as being a badly spoken, sort of broken Spanish. Yes, of course, there's no, there's no, I don't know, there's no version of that when you're speaking English and you say something in Spanish, right? Mm -hmm. But, I mean, in our community, that's not looked upon as something that is good. And, you know, we are concerned whenever we hear our children say something that sounds a little bit like that. Um, what do you think about Spanglish? I think Spanglish is a normal um, result of the environment, you know, like... And let's talk about Spanglish in other ways. Like you have Chicano communities, for example, that code switch quite often, um, or that used to like the reports of Chicano communities is a community that, or New Yorkans, right? Like you are talking about these people who have mm -hmm. been in the Spanish environments, but now are heavily influenced by English. And I think code switching is a completely normal part of their lives and is accepted by the cultural environment. Um, you know, as this is the way we speak and is, for me, it's a completely normal pattern. Um, I think it's beautiful in some ways that these people have the ability to switch between the two languages and as and a result of the environment and not about limitations um, of the ability to maintain them separately. Um, as a mother, I, I make a lot of emphasis on staying on the output in Spanish or in English just because I think the output, meaning what the child says, right, is key for language maintenance. Um, I think, and so, you know, I think, and this is one of my areas my research is going, is as long as the child is producing the language constantly in Spanish in some ways, right, they will tend to maintain more the language. It's the moment that they switch to having output in English only, that that language or okay. that ability to produce language might... A decrease in maybe language maintenance will not happen as much because right because code switching can only happen with bilingual people correct right mm -hmm. or, or or do i have that wrong okay no and, so, and that's, a, that's such a good example monica because if you think about someone who speaks what people call spanglish right which is maybe an an extreme version of code switching if you if you are code switching or using Spanglish with someone who speaks only English, then you are in serious troubles because that is not going to work. <laughs> and most people who are doing that, they know that, so they don't do it, right? So if you're using code switching or you're in a community who have at least code switch, you only do that with people who you know are capable of understanding what you're doing. And that's what I say in right. some ways is a beautiful ability to do this, right? Right. It, it is. It feels great. I just, but you know, of course we can do it, but our kids can't. But I think maybe it's because you are in an environment where you value that and there are different types of code switching, but maybe if you were a mother in an environment that values that more, it's all about where we place values. That's true. And that's true. And you know, I don't, I don't know where you are. And also we are more, 
I, I don't know about you, Monica, but we were born, we were raised initially monolingual, and then at different points we turned into being bilingual. I don't know, Monica, if you were born in the United States and you were raised as bilingual. So in some ways we are a different type of, that we place right. a lot of I emphasis was, on being monolingual and using one language. Right. I was raised as bilingual, mm -hmm. but my, my, my primary language, you know, the one that my home language and my, my school language was mostly Spanish. So yes, yes. So, so, but, but English, you know, was something that I learned from the beginning. So I actually, you know, I, I, I always tell Paula that I don't remember when I started learning both languages, they just kind of sprouted at the same time, mm -hmm. which was a gift Yes, because it didn't feel like anything. It was just normal. That's what you do. And, yes. and that's wonderful. And were you in what state were you raised? Puerto Rico. Okay, you were raised in Puerto Rico. So that so, is also something about it, right? Like you were raised in a, an environment where being bilingual was normal. Yeah. Exactly. And you're blessed. Exactly. And you're, you're not lucky in that sense because no one, no other child came and talked to you and say, what are you speaking Spanish or what are you doing that, right? Like I has happened and I try to, because you get judgments from everyone, even our little kids. And some kids come and ask my kids, like, why are you speaking Spanish? And I usually laugh and my husband gets so upset and he goes and says, <laughs> the question is really, why don't you speak Spanish? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great comeback. <laughs> leave it to the... And the poor little kids, I'm like, he is five, like leave him alone. <laughs> Leave it to the dads, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, but it's all about this perception of being speaking Spanish is bad for you, or you come from a lower group just because you are bilingual, which is the view in the United States and not the view across the world. Um, you mentioned that a little bit in the chapter, which I thought was interesting. You you mentioned that the view of bilingualism has shifted a little bit in the United States in the past thirty years, but it's it's right that in other countries, it's seen as such a such an advantage, such a, you know, it, it's kind of normal. Most people are learning, like you mentioned, different languages. Why do you think it's shifted? And I mean, and where do you see it going? Do you think it, it has really changed that much? Or is there still that kind of, I don't know if it's an underappreciation for bilingualism? Well, I think it comes, we know it comes from the so bilingualism or whether a country is monolingual or bilingualism is heavily influenced by immigration patterns, right? So in the history of the United States, you have other groups that have immigrated here that also have lost their languages over time. Um, and Spanish is just the most recent, it's just the most recent example if you think about immigration waves. And the speaking the language is often related with how appreciated that language is. And, and I always say these things, and I, I think I quoted that on the chapter, there is, um, someone says it is, it is amazing for someone to be raised bilingual if you have white skin and blue eyes, and then people appreciate that you speak one or two <laughs> languages, and that you speak Spanish, but the moment that your skin is of a different color, then that advantage is deleted, you know, because now they say you need to speak English and whether you speak Spanish or not, it's not seen as a view, as a positive viewpoint. And it is about all of us to, you know, upon us to educate people and to show that it doesn't really matter the color of your skin, speaking to a language is a valuable tool for everyone. Um, but as I was mentioning before, it's related to immigration, it's related to a social class, has it changed? I think it has changed. And if you look into cities, for example, Houston with dual language programs, um, and here you have 10 children that are Spanish speakers, and then the school recruits other 10 children who are English speaking, children who don't speak any Spanish who are interested in being raised bilinguals. So that is something relatively new that people who were not Latino are trying to learn more Spanish is I think something relatively new, and that's what I think things have changed. Um, are we in the point where people appreciate that you are bilingual? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, like when I, uh, even in the school systems, like in Houston, if you are completely fluent bilingual, you don't have any options about education. You really need to be limited English speaker. So still, still bilingualism is being seen as a deficit 
You know, like what is the deficit that you come with to the school that I need to help you with? Right. You know, so so no, not appreciated. And even with the politics nowadays, you know, even less appreciated. And even, you know, I was reading um, um, an article, I think it was in Education Weekly, where there was a survey by um, uh, the American Councils for International Education, where it said that about one in five K through 12 students are studying a foreign language. And this includes American Sign Language. Mm -hmm. And that seems so low. And, you know, you read other stories, you know, in, in, in where in certain school districts, the demand for bilingual programs is incredibly high. And we know this because in our particular areas um, where we live, it, there's, you know, lotteries and all of these sort of, you know, hurdles mm -hmm. that you have to go through to get into this bilingual school curriculums, right? Correct. So um, what kind of... of strategy do you suggest for parents that are not going to have access to these curriculums? Because many of us won't have access to that just based on these numbers, right? Um, do you think that maybe, you know, there's another track if, if, if you can't get on that particular sort of, you know, school curriculum track? I have some research that is not published yet that says that if And we are comparing like language development in children who are attending bilingual schools versus children who are attending English-only schools. And what we right, know is that right. Spanish can continue to develop with time, right? Uh, things like mm -hmm. how long your utterances are continue to develop, Not maybe not at the same rate as children who are receiving bilingual education, but it continues to develop. And I really think it is about the community. It's about the parents. It's about the number of Spanish speakers in the home. It's about, very importantly, about the friends of your kids. And when languages are valued mm -hmm. among them. Um, so I think the, the number one strategy is try to maintain the use of the home language, um, the minority language at home as much as you can. And try to encourage without fighting, because I know some children react really bad to the, <laughs> en este caso hablamos español. Um, It is more like showing up an appreciation and a love for speaking another language and try to maintain that reading in the other language, I think is key. Um, because think about even for monolingual children, the way that they acquire vocabulary and better language experiences is through reading. So if a parent doesn't have access to schooling in Spanish, um, teaching those kids to read in Spanish and offering opportunities to read Spanish books Um, it's an amazing strategy um, just by itself because we learn language by reading and reading about different right. experiences and being exposed to different vocabulary and learning and teaching to read Spanish is not a, such a complex process as it is in English, right? When you have to learn all these exceptions to the rule, uh, teaching to learn in mm -hmm. Spanish is a more transparent process that might, I think, be done by parents and and the community if there is not access to schooling in the language. So parents, it is possible. <laughs> Just have some determination. Yes, <laughs> it is hard, it. but I and think it is possible. Um, but it's definitely not, not easy. It just needs work and it needs planning and it needs effort by everyone involved. In, and yes. Yes. And I think it's important, you know, you're talking about, you know, finding reasons to speak the language mm -hmm. and finding spaces that are what I call spaces in Spanish, mm -hmm. you know, where you go somewhere outside of the home and they'll, you know, there'll be other children there speaking Spanish because this space has, we have determined that that's, you know, where you're going to switch. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the language that you're going to speak. And that's something that, you know, there's not really a lot of that available in it to us you know there's not a lot of places where you can go where everyone will be speaking spanish because we have all agreed that that is what you know that's what we're there for but i think um, as, as so we as finding, mothers we need to do that right we need to create this safe right. place where spanish is value and where it's spoken and when different models are and i have said that different play like play spaces where the language is in spanish 
and with some monitoring from adults might work for these kids. Um, so, so yes, I, I see what you're saying. In some ways, choosing friends based on the language exposure <laughs> might be good. <laughs> like I talked to that mother, not that one. She speaks English. <laughs> That's how we met, right, yeah. Annie? Yeah. We heard each other. Exactly. Yeah, that park. was the first check mark that we covered. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. yes, we met at a park randomly. <laughs> so, and yeah, it's great because exactly. our kids do speak. I think, and I think Annie's kids are probably the only two kids that Amelia speaks in Spanish uh, with. Because just at school, she tends to speak mode more in English just because of her group of friends seems to be more English dominant. So, and it's great. It's great for her. It's, yeah, it, it, it's probably because that relationship was established in Spanish because right. w one, one interesting thing is, <laughs> you know, for some reason, Paula and I speak English, English to each other. <laughs> And, you know, the reason is because we speak, uh, we, we met in, in, in an academic environment, right? That was very serious. We were doing our master's degree and everyone else, I think everyone else spoke English. So that's what, how the dynamic was developed. Yep. And now it's funny because speaking Spanish to each other, we can do it, but it's just not at all the default. And, you know, and it's interesting, you know, it's, so developing those dynamics from the beginning and making sure that they happen in the desired language is really important. Absolutely. And that works for kids, too. You say, as you say, like, you know, once that initial um, is established among bilinguals, this is the language we speak, is that usually what you say and some Some people can switch them back and forth depending on different things. But yes, um, so establishing like some expectations about the communication, I think is really about the parents. Uh, my kids play with Paula's daughter and she ha they have also another set of twins who speak mainly Spanish, that they speak to them in Spanish. And in their classroom, because they have monolingual Spanish speakers and English monolingual speakers, They really can switch back and forth between before, like they really know early on what language they should speak and what is the strongest language of the other child. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, so yes, it's just about finding opportunities for them to use it. And I have done on purpose, have chosen spaces and as I think Monica called them Spanish spaces. Yes. yes, I I have I I'm, I haven't coined the term yet. I'm just sort of. <laughs> oh, we can start coining it here. Then there you go. Yeah, and then see like trying to find Spanish in spaces where that is the language that is valued and is much easier for us guys than is for someone living, for example, where I was in Buffalo, right? Um, so if it's hard for us, imagine people in other environments. Oh my god! Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Any one thing yeah. that you mentioned. Uh, earlier that I wanted to come back to is you were talking about output and you know you know that if the child is speaking in Spanish as the years progress then you know it's a I guess a good marker to I don't know if that's the correct termino terminology but I think for a lot of parents you know it's it's kind of an exhausting task to maintain this going <laughs> you know on and on for yeah. for their lives, for, really for at least for as long as they're at home, right? Are there any other things that you consider that, or signs that parents can can observe and say, okay, you know, this is working out. Um, they're, they're getting it. Other than, you know, the obvious that they're speaking it, but, you know, especially as they grow older, are there things that, you know, parents can look for or educators can look for that they say okay this this child is kind of getting both languages and so if if the child is understanding that what's happening in Spanish definitely that is a a sign that is important right like understanding the language so I understand that is completely tiring all day to be like switch to Spanish we speak Spanish try to do Spanish and I know that that is the main reason why a lot of the bilingual moms uh, go back to they speak Spanish and the kids reply in English. I think that's probably the most common pattern. Uh, and they have accepted that as that this is their dynamic and it is okay. It's better than 
because who, what mother needs something else to fight with the kids at that time? <laughs> <laughs> if it's not eating or picking up or doing homework or waking up or brushing their teeth or like as a mother, I completely understand that. Um, so whether the child is understanding the other language, I think it is key. And also kids are really smart. Like if they know that you understand them in English, like why will I put the effort in speaking Spanish if you still understand English and this is easier for me? I did a little bit. I am. We are developing a new research project that starts in the fall, collecting data. And I was trying to see one of the little things we were trying to see is if kids themselves, six-year-olds, can quantify or can tell you about their English, um, about the language dominance and the language preferences, right? And how many friends they have to see that can predict later language development. And I was asking my son. Um, what was easier for him to speak? You know, and we have these scales that is made with candies, you know, so easy is one little piece of candy and very difficult is five pieces of candy <laughs> just to show some quantity. And and then he really rated that it was easier for him to speak English than to speak Spanish. That's interesting. You know, and I thought, how interesting, like my completely, Santiago sounds like a native Spanish speaker. Uh, to anyone like if he goes to Colombia no one will ever ask him and when he is here in in the parks or things people ask him if he is from Colombia and is a recent immigrant you know so he has this amazing abilities in Spanish but he himself at age six can rate that for him is slightly easier to speak English and he is this one switch switches most most in our home um, so if as a mother you know I I I can see a little bit of how they feel and how they do. I can understand how fighting with them is complicated during the day. Um, I think another way that you can check whether is when a new native speaker that is a monolingual person comes into play. Maybe your child doesn't want to talk to you because, hey, he's tired of fighting with you. There are so many emotional battles that we are all playing as mother and children as we all grow up. And maybe language ends up being one of them, right? But if, let's say, grandma comes into the city or your aunt who you have not seen in seven years and she's coming from Mexico and this child is able to maintain a conversation with them, I will say, hey, look, even though he or she might not be using it on a daily basis, he might have enough language skills to, to do the things that we value, which is to maintain communication with our families. I wish I had more answers, but we really, you know, language maintenance, as you might expect, there is a lot of research, million of dollars spent on research on these kids learning English, right? Right. <laughs> the number of million yes. of dollars in them maintaining their Spanish is not as much. Yes. No, <laughs> because it's not a priority for us as a society. Yeah. Although I have been very lucky securing funding to do research in Spanish. So I am, I think, the exception. <laughs> That is wonderful that you've gotten, you know, that, that you've gotten that, that recognition, that your research has gotten that recognition. And it's really comforting for us parents, you know, seeing that that field of study is growing. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I hope that it continues to grow because I think that that's going to be symbiotic with the way that our education system handles bilingualism. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that we wanted to know is where can people find out more about your research? Well, people can, um, I think the easiest way is to Google, you know, like Mr. Google, to Google my name, Annie Castilla Earls at the University of Houston, and you will find my profile. When you find my profile, you see some of my publications. It's a very researcher-like profile, um, but my email address is there, and I'm going to also provided here for people to contact me if they have any questions and I might be useful to them. So my email address is Annie, A-N-N-Y, Castilla, C-A-S-T-I-L-L-A, at U-H dot E-D-U. Great. Thank you so much. We'll make sure to add Annie's email to our newsletter. Yes. Okay, and, perfect. And we'll link. Lovely. Yeah. Yes. And on the show notes, we'll link to your profile as well so people can find you. And um, we'll get the name of the book where Annie's, uh, the chapter we referenced in this episode will be published uh, in a future date. So we'll also mention that there in case anybody's interested so they can look out for it. So thank you so much for joining us, Annie. This was 
great. And we, we really hope to have you back soon because I know this topic is so complex and there's so much to talk about. Thank you for having me. And I really wanted to say, guys, what you're doing is amazing. Not very people have the courage and, and want to put the effort into talking about this. And what you're doing is a way that we show the world that being bilingual is completely normal and that the challenges that we face are just part of the process. And so thank you for doing that. That helps my kids, that helps me, that helps my research. The more we bring awareness to the community, I think the more likely we are to value who we are and the languages that we speak. So thank you to you too. Wow, that means a lot. Thank you so <laughs> thank much you. for the words. That's, that's very encouraging as we, we start this out. So thank you. <laughs> Come join us at our Facebook group, Entre Dos Community. It's a private group, so you can just let all of your bilingual fields hang out with ours, share your questions, successes, failures, and strategies. You can also recommend books, music, places, and digital resources, or just uh, stop by and say hi. You can also sign up for Entre Dos newsletter at entredospodcast.com. We're sending out a digest of the week's most interesting and inspiring articles about bilingualism, as well as resources that may help you stay on track. Our favorite books, music, events, and anything else that we find that may help you uh, with your bilingual child. And we hope you'll subscri subscribe to our iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and on our Facebook group, Entre Dos Podcasts. We'd really love to see you there. And you can also find us on our network, All Points West, at allpointswest.net. So until next week, nos vemos. Adios.